Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023, the 833rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So as usual, there is so much going on that it's hard to keep track of any of it. Let's just try to get through a bunch of it. And we'll start today with what is being reported as an attempt on Vladimir Putin's life while inside the Kremlin. 
This is from Just the News this morning. Kremlin says Ukraine sent drones to Kremlin to kill Putin. Kiev says not responsible. The Kremlin on Wednesday said it shot down two drones that Ukraine sent to assassinate Russian President Vladimir Putin. As a result of timely actions taken by the military and special services with the use of radar warfare systems, the vehicles were put out of action, the Kremlin said, as translated. No one was hurt and no material damage was caused by the incident. The Kremlin also said the drones were part of a planned terrorist act and an attempt on the president. Putin's work schedule will continue as normal, according to Russian officials. The Russian side reserves the right to take retaliatory measures where and when it sees fit. The Kremlin concluded the statement. Mikhailo Podolyak, an advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, said Kyiv was not involved in the incident, but it was likely the work of quote-unquote local resistance forces. Russia is clearly preparing a large-scale terrorist attack, he wrote on Twitter. He also said Ukraine is involved in an exclusively defensive war and does not attack Russian territory because it would give the Kremlin grounds to justify its attacks on civilians. The incident occurred on the eve of Russia's Victory Day, which features a parade to commemorate the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany in 1945. And 78 years later, they are in the midst of a victory over another Nazi army. So what exactly happened here? Well, we've seen a couple of video clips that purport to be the outside view of the Kremlin from a few blocks away as an inbound object heads toward the Kremlin and then explodes in a small blast right before making contact. It actually looks like a dud in a fireworks show. The firework just gets shot up, goes off course, blows up harmlessly like an oversized firecracker that doesn't look like it could have damaged the Kremlin too much anyway. And the question becomes, who was responsible for this? There are claims that it was a Russian false flag, that Russia did it to itself, much like when it attacked the Nord Stream pipeline, except that there's no indication that that story was ever actually true, that Russia had anything to do with it. We've talked about Seymour Hersh's extensive reporting about how it was a CIA-involved effort to blow up the Nord Stream approved of by the illegitimate President Joe Biden. We're told that Russia would do this in order to create a justifiable motive for attacking Ukraine even harder. And Podolyak was alluding to that. Russia wants to justify its attacks on civilians. That has been the Ukraine story the entire time. If you recall back to before the Russian invasion ever began, we were hearing stories constantly about how the Russians were going to stage a false flag attack that would allow them to justify their brutal invasion. That never came and everybody kind of just forgot about it. But the Russians have been getting accused of this the entire time. Now, we have seen actual terrorist attacks that certainly don't seem to have been carried out by the Russians. The Nord Stream pipeline, of course, is one. We have that Crimean bridge that was blown up. 
We had the assassination, attempted assassination of Putin advisor Alexander Dugin, who is said to be a great political and philosophical influence on Vladimir Putin. They tried to blow up his car. They actually blew up his car while his daughter was driving. So there's that assassination. There have been other attacks within Russian borders most recently, a month ago at a cafe in St. Petersburg. And whenever these attacks happen, we are always told that they are done by unknown actors supporting Ukraine's cause, but not directly related to Ukraine or Volodymyr Zelensky in any way. The comedic actor would never, ever do such a thing. The Nord Stream pipeline attacks, for instance, were carried out by six Ukrainian supporters who rented a boat and bombed critical energy infrastructure. But it's never the regime in Ukraine. It's never MI6. It's never the CIA. And it's definitely never the fake president. None of those people or groups would ever carry out a terrorist attack like the ones described. It's just that they keep happening. So we don't know who did it. Could it have been the U.S. or NATO or MI6, something in that sphere? Sure. Could it be Ukrainians? Sure. Could the whole thing be fake? Could it be a Russian false flag? Unlikely, but hey, maybe. So what do we make of it? Well, honestly, not much. It just seems like a narrative escalation. And we'll see where that goes. Zero Hedge put together a collection of reactions to this incident. The first is audio of the comedic actor himself, Volodymyr Zelensky. We don't attack Putin or Moscow. We fight on, on our territory. We are defending our villages and cities. We don't have, you know enough weapon for this. That's why we don't use it any, anywhere. For, for us, that is the deficit. We, we can't spend it. And we didn't attack Putin. We leave it to tribunal. So the comedic actor explains that Ukraine is actually too poor and doesn't have enough weapons to stage an attack like this. It's interesting that Zelensky's statement is in English, because you have to consider who his audience is. This statement is going out to the West. He wants to let all of the people who have backed his war effort for the last 15 months know that he would never, ever even consider doing such a thing. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken weighed in, casting doubt on Russia's narrative. Regarding Russia's explanations and statements, Blinken said, I can't in any way validate them. We simply don't know. Second, I would take anything coming out of the Kremlin with a very large shaker of salt. That's Antony Blinken, who helped the fake president set up that letter from 51 former intelligence officials that would call the Hunter Biden laptop Russian disinformation. Antony Blinken himself the illegitimate secretary of state coordinated with the intelligence community to subvert an American election and make sure that Donald Trump would not remain president. That guy wants us to know that we shouldn't trust anyone else. Russian officials are calling it a terrorist attack. 
Vyacheslav Volodin, the chairman of Russia's lower house of parliament, said we will demand the use of weapons capable of stopping and destroying the Kiev terrorist regime. There's a lot of tough talk coming out of Russia's state Duma. Miranov, this is a real casus belli, a pretext for war to eliminate the terrorist elite of Ukraine. We have something to hit their bunkers with. Sheremet, it's time to launch a missile attack on Zelensky's residence in Kiev, ready to give the coordinates. Bankovaya Street, 11. Zelensky should start to be afraid. Shkagoshev, the response from Russia will be quite tough. It's not a red line anymore. It's a stoplight. Zhuravlyov, we need to target the center of Kiev, destroy the president's office, destroy the Verkhovna Rada, the general staff, and the buildings housing the Ukrainian special services to the ground. And Belik, if they think they have long arms, then let them know we have something to shorten these arms. So a lot of tough talk, which sounds to me like it tracks more with narrative escalation rather than legitimate threats, because whatever talks there are about next moves in this conflict, you would think that any threats to be made have already been made behind the scenes and that a bunch of Russian politicians saber rattling in the media would have no effect on whatever decisions are made. Zero Hedge writes, the New York Times, meanwhile, has underscored that if confirmed, it would be the most audacious attempted strike on Russian soil since Moscow launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February last year. The report also provides a reminder of recent U.S. intelligence revelations which previewed just such a scenario as drones targeting the Kremlin. This is quoting from the Times. Local and regional authorities in Russia have reported a series of drone strikes in recent months. Some have landed close to Ukraine's border with Russia, but at least one has hit south of Moscow. Ukraine has not acknowledged responsibility for most of the incidents. Moscow is around 280 miles northeast of the Ukrainian border at its closest point. Last month, the Washington Post reported that the United States had secretly monitored discussions among Ukrainian officials about possible attacks against Moscow, time to coincide with the February 24th anniversary of Russia's invasion. The White House feared that such a move would provoke an aggressive response from Moscow two days before the anniversary. The CIA said that Ukraine's intelligence directorate had agreed at Washington's request to postpone strikes on Moscow. The information was part of a trove of classified U.S. intelligence documents obtained by the Post and other news organizations. And that's interesting. The U.S. does not direct these attacks, but it does have the power to stop them simply by saying, hey, guys, don't do that. Kind of makes you wonder how one slips through. A statement from the Russian presidency's office said, we consider this a pre-planned terrorist action and an attempt against the Russian president. It happened ahead of Victory Day and the parade on May 9th when foreign guests planned to be present. Two unmanned aerial vehicles were aimed at the Kremlin as a result of timely actions taken by the military and special services using radar warfare systems. The devices were disabled. So we'll keep an eye on that and see where it goes. So yesterday we discussed the report in the Wall Street Journal from over the weekend about 
all of the high profile, powerful, politically connected people who had been linked to Jeffrey Epstein after the release of some information about his scheduling. And we also discussed within the last couple of weeks, a man named Reed Hoffman, who was one of the co-founders of LinkedIn, a billionaire Democrat donor. He was considering putting money behind Ron DeSantis in an anti-Trump effort in order to get DeSantis the GOP nomination and move Trump out of the picture as if that would somehow work. We also talked about how he has been directly linked to E. Jean Carroll, who is bringing the nonsense rape case against Donald Trump. Reed Hoffman is taking care of her legal fund. Today, we get this in the New York Post. LinkedIn billionaire Reed Hoffman visited Jeffrey Epstein's private island, planned to visit NYC mansion. Billionaire LinkedIn co-founder Reed Hoffman visited Jeffrey Epstein's private island and had plans to stay at Epstein's notorious Manhattan townhouse back in 2014, a new report revealed. Hoffman, 55, paid a single visit to Epstein's Caribbean island, Little St. James, also known as Pedophile Island, where Epstein and gal pal Ghislaine Maxwell allegedly abused underage girls. Joy Ito, the then MIT Media Lab director, was also in attendance and had asked Hoffman and Epstein to help him raise funds for MIT, according to new documents obtained by the journal. Ito confirmed Hoffman's involvement in the MIT fundraising on Epstein's island in an email to the journal. Reed attended a few fundraising events at my request, including one trip to Little St. James after I confirmed to Reed that Mr. Epstein had been an approved donor target for MIT in accordance with university rules and regulations, he wrote. That's kind of incredible, just that, by the way. This man, Joy Ito, the Media Lab Director at MIT, said that the already convicted Epstein was approved as a donor target for MIT. What sort of person wouldn't be approved by MIT as a donor if they accept a registered sex offender who has already been convicted of exploiting underage girls? Hoffman also penned an email to the journal apologizing for ever meeting with the convicted sex offender. While I relied on MIT's endorsement, ultimately I made the mistake, and I am sorry for my personal misjudgment, Hoffman wrote. The Post reached out to Hoffman for comment. Hoffman and Ito were planning to revisit Epstein Island in November 2014, the documents revealed. Following the trip, Hoffman and Ito were scheduled to travel with Epstein from Palm Beach to his tropical residence and then from the island to Boston. The intent behind the trips were not revealed, although Epstein did own a Florida mansion where he was said to have sexually abused underage girls and young women. So Hoffman was going to hit all of Jeffrey Epstein's hot spots: the Palm Beach mansion, the compound on Little St. James. I'm amazed that the New York Post actually refers to it as Pedophile Island and then his townhouse in New York. The documents also had Hoffman's plans to stay the night in Epstein's townhouse following a late night flight to Manhattan on December 4th, 2014. In the morning, the venture capitalist planned to attend a breakfast party where the likes of Epstein and Bill Gates 
were scheduled to be in attendance. Hoffman, who's now worth $2 billion, confirmed to the journal that his last interaction with Epstein was in 2015. That year, he invited Epstein to a dinner in Palo Alto with Silicon Valley heads. It gnaws me that by lending my association, I helped his reputation and thus delayed justice for his survivors. He wrote in an email to the journal, so sincere. If only there was some way that he could have known that Jeffrey Epstein was not a very good guy before he scheduled these multiple meetings and trips together. If only there was some way that this politically well-connected billionaire could have had someone look into Jeffrey Epstein simply by Googling Jeffrey Epstein and reading in what must certainly be the first result that Jeffrey Epstein is a convicted pedophile and human trafficker. If only this tech founder would have known that the internet existed, maybe this whole thing could have been prevented and he wouldn't have helped delay justice for the Epstein survivors. Ito, meanwhile, resigned from his position at MIT Media Lab following Epstein's 2019 arrest and apologized for accepting any money from the disgraced founder. MIT later donated $850,000 to nonprofits assisting sexual abuse survivors, the journal reported. And I would love to know which nonprofits those were and how directly connected to Jeffrey Epstein and his friends they were. It's also amazing that it only took Joy Ito four extra years to figure out that Jeffrey Epstein is not a good guy. He resigned after Jeffrey Epstein's arrest. Apparently, that is the point at which Jeffrey Epstein became a real liability. This is from this morning in the Daily Mail. Ex-Barclays boss Jess Staley is accused of abusing girls during a visit to Jeffrey Epstein's U.S. Virgin Island retreat after the pedophile financier told him to, quote, do what he wanted. Lawsuit claims. Former Barclays boss Jess Staley is alleged to have abused victims at late financier Jeffrey Epstein's Virgin Islands retreat, according to a court ruling issued Monday. The document rejected motions to dismiss complaints claiming J.P. Morgan and Deutsche Bank were legally liable for their alleged facilitation of Epstein's sex crimes. The ruling instead revealed that Staley was alleged to have, quote, used aggressive force in his sexual assault of an anonymous victim who is being called in the case JPM Jane Doe, and I imagine that stands for JP Morgan, and informed her that he had Epstein's permission to do what he wanted to her. Victims claim Epstein agreed to bring valuable clients to JP Morgan in exchange for Staley using his influence with the bank to make Epstein untouchable. Amazing. Massive global banking institutions carving out quid pro quos for the protection of high profile convicted pedophiles. Sounds like a conspiracy theory. Staley has been accused of having, quote, observed victims personally and, quote, visited young girls at Epstein's apartments, exchanging some 1,200 emails with Epstein from 2008 to 2012, said to have included pictures of young women in seductive poses. 
James Jess Staley headed J.P. Morgan's private banking division and started to service Epstein's accounts around the year 2000. According to Monday's report, Staley is alleged to have developed a close personal friendship with Epstein and was promoted to CEO of the lender's asset management division while Epstein was a client. Lawsuits brought against J.P. Morgan alleged that Staley had firsthand knowledge of Epstein's operation and now claim his direct involvement. Suits brought by the U.S. Virgin Islands and an accuser of Epstein also allege that J.P. Morgan and Deutsche Bank knew about and benefited from Epstein's sex trafficking. The islands claim that J.P. Morgan knowingly benefited from participating in a sex trafficking venture was not dismissed in a trimming of the suits in March. Staley, who was head of J.P. Morgan's private banking division from 2000 to 2009, advised Epstein and has admitted to having shared a close professional relationship. District Court Judge Jed Rakoff said in Monday's ruling that J.P. Morgan Chase Bank could be liable to women who accused Epstein of abuse if they can show that Staley had firsthand knowledge that Epstein ran a sex trafficking venture. Now, that's kind of massive. All they have to show is that Jess Staley knew what Jeffrey Epstein was up to, and then the bank can be held liable to Jeffrey Epstein's victims. That could turn into a real big problem because it sounds like that proof is probably relatively easy to establish. The lender has argued that the cases have no merit and that Staley is to blame for the relationship with Epstein. It was reported in March that J.P. Morgan would sue Staley to make him liable for penalties faced in relation to the bank allegedly helping Epstein. Staley has hit out at his former employer, claiming it to be deflecting blame from his own failures in working with Epstein. He claimed he was being used as a quote unquote public relations shield and said the bank had no viable claims against him over its relationship with Epstein and could not plausibly allege he was solely at fault. The opinion published on Monday, May 1st, summarized allegations that Staley knew about the operation. It noted that Plaintiffs claimed Staley had developed a close relationship with Epstein. Staley allegedly ignored red flags as Epstein grew the operation to, quote, sexually abuse and traffic countless young women. The document also notes that, quote, the complaints do not support the allegation that either J.P. Morgan or Deutsche Bank acted with the specific intent of benefiting from a sex trafficking venture, end quote, dismissing the plaintiff's claims for attempting to violate the TPVA. So they knew that Jeffrey Epstein was a convicted pedophile and human trafficker, and they knew that they had a working relationship with him, but they didn't know exactly what he was doing with his money, so there's no way you could hold them accountable for anything. The suit against the banks claimed that they let Epstein withdraw cash to pay women involved in his trafficking ring and that they failed to conduct due diligence in reporting. So we have major Democrat donor, LinkedIn co-founder, Reed Hoffman, the man who is potentially going to be helping to fund Ron DeSantis's anti-Trump effort if one actually happens. He's also funding the E. Jean Carroll rape case against Donald Trump, trying to take Donald Trump out however possible. And then we also have Jess Staley from J.P. Morgan, 
with a very close personal relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein, of course, himself, as we discussed yesterday, directly tied to people like Bill Gates, like Noam Chomsky, various universities like MIT and Harvard. He was directly tied to Obama's fixer, Catherine Rumler, former White House counsel, who now is a lawyer at Goldman Sachs and current CIA director and former deputy secretary of state under Obama, Bill Burns. And you got to wonder at what point all of this becomes not a conspiracy theory. Once we've reached the point where the media is churning out Jeffrey Epstein tied to prominent official headlines basically every day now. It's also particularly interesting to see J.P. Morgan getting some of this heat vis-a-vis Jess Staley because J.P. Morgan, as we discussed, is taking over First Republic Bank. And you can't imagine that's going to be the last one because banks continue the downslide. Insider Paper compiled a list of banks who are seeing their values plummet. PacWest Bank Corp off 30%. Western Alliance off 25%, Metropolitan Bank 21%, Home Street Bank 15%, Zions Bank 10%, Key Corp 7%, Harbor One lost 6%, Citizens Financial down 5%. And naturally, there is no end in sight to any of this because we are in the middle of a widespread financial collapse and the global move away from fiat regime bucks branded as United States dollars. This is from yesterday in Zero Hedge. Five Arab states plus Iran among 19 nations ready to join BRICS. 19 nations. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Algeria, Egypt, Bahrain, and Iran have formally asked to join the BRICS group of nations as it prepares to hold its annual summit in South Africa. In total, 19 nations have expressed interest in joining the emerging markets block of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, according to Anil Suklal, South Africa's ambassador to the group. What will be discussed is the expansion of BRICS and the modalities of how this will happen. 13 countries have formally asked to join and another six have asked informally. We are getting applications to join every day. The South African official told Bloomberg earlier this week, BRICS will hold its annual summit in Cape Town during the first week of June. The foreign ministers from all five member states have confirmed their attendance. Earlier this month, Bloomberg revealed that BRICS is expected to soon surpass the U.S.-led G7 states in economic growth expectations. Per their analysis, while G7 and BRICS nations each contributed equally to global economic growth in 2020, the Western-led bloc's performance has recently declined. By 2028, the G7 is expected to make up just 27.8% of the global economy, while BRICS will make up 35%. The estimations came just a few weeks after the deputy chairman of Russia's state Duma, Alexander Babakov, revealed that BRICS is working on developing a new currency that will be presented at the organization's upcoming summit. BRICS member states account for over 40% of the global population and around a quarter of the global GDP. 
the interest from global South nations to join the bloc comes at a time when more and more governments move away from the U.S. dollar. The greenback has become more unreliable for dollarized economies due to rising interest rates regulated by the U.S. Federal Reserve and the bank's weaponization of the dollar through financial sanctions. In addition, the West, especially Europe, is facing a growing energy crisis resulting from sanctions targeting Russian energy markets due to its invasion of Ukraine and the U.S. sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. It's becoming difficult to overstate the global shift that's happening here. American military might has kind of lost its luster. Countries around the world are understanding that the United States is not what it once was and is not in a position to act as it once acted, particularly not with a totally illegitimate president, a man who is understood to be illegitimate by all other world leaders. And with the economy and currency in shambles, the threat of the United States, or at least the global regime within the United States, seems as though it's lost its ability to serve as a deterrent. Last week, the Mises Institute wrote this article. It's a good thing for ordinary Americans if the U.S. loses reserve currency status. Earlier in April... Larry Kudlow insisted that it is incumbent on the United States government, no matter who's in power, to maintain the reserve currency status of the dollar. Kudlow laments that a toppling of the dollar from that perch, quote, seems to be the direction we're going in. Kudlow's remarks came a day after Donald Trump declared that China is trying to displace the U.S. dollar as the number one currency and that If this occurs, it would be the biggest defeat for our country in its history. Neither Trump nor Kudlow actually explain why maintaining reserve currency status is so important. After all, it's clear that it is not necessary for a country's currency to be a reserve currency in order for that country to have a high standard of living and a high degree of economic freedom. We could simply look to Norway and Switzerland to see that. And I'm not sure if those are the best possible examples, but we'll move on. Trump and Kudlow seemingly can't tell the difference between what is good for the U.S. government and what is good for the people. Again, the idea that Trump doesn't know what's going on here is a little insane, but the argument beyond that is sound. The idea that global reserve currency status for the dollar is essential to America relies on the false notion that the interests of the U.S. regime and the interests of ordinary taxpaying Americans are one and the same. These interests rarely coincide, however, and they certainly don't when it comes to reserve currency status. This is especially the case when the dollar is unbacked by any commodity like gold and is simply a floating fiat currency that can be inflated at the will of the regime at any time. And this is exactly what we've been discussing for months. He is also taking note of the most important factor, and that's that you can't just call America one thing. What's good for the regime in America, the evil twin faction of the U.S. government, is not at all the same as what's good for the American people and the actual economy, which is the productivity and activity of the American people. That global reserve currency status benefits the regime itself is obvious. 
This status for the dollar does indeed allow the regime to more recklessly inflate the dollar and increase deficits. This enhances the U.S. regime's ability to bribe voters with enormous welfare programs and involve the U.S. regime in a dazzling array of wars that have nothing to do with defending U.S. territory. None of this, however, improves the standard of living of Americans who pay the bills. Even worse, when the dollar ceases to be the dominant reserve currency, an event that is inevitable, holders of dollars will see their purchasing power plummet. Yet it's not the end of reserve currency status that is to blame for the inflationist pain. Rather, the fault will lie with decades of monetary and fiscal mismanagement made possible by the dollar's status as the global reserve currency. To demand the regime continue to cling to global reserve currency status is to demand a continuation of the policies that have hollowed out the financial well-being of Americans for decades. Trump and Kudlow, however, are not troubled by this. For them, it appears that the supposed importance of reserve currency status is not about economic concerns, but is really a political project. This shouldn't surprise us given many of the narratives surrounding the dollar's status, which focus on China and Chinese geopolitical power as the main reason to fear a decline of the dollar. This isn't about protecting your wealth or reigning in government power. It's about increasing U.S. government power in the name of fighting the latest foreign axis of evil. And again, I think that the argument he's making is absolutely sound. He's hitting all of the right points. I just disagree about what Trump is doing in his messaging. And these are the points at which people get upset and they say, why are you making excuses for Donald Trump? Well, the response is, what do you want Donald Trump to say? It's a very similar argument to the one that people continue to make mindlessly that Donald Trump must disavow the vaccines. Why? What benefit would that serve? Donald Trump is in a position of messaging and narrative manipulation. There is nothing that could be gained by Donald Trump coming out and saying the vaccines are bad because then all the regime rushes to pin the blame for the vaccine program totally on Donald Trump, where the responsibility does not lie. He would literally be doing a favor to the vaccine manufacturers, all of the regulators who allowed it, and the illegitimate administration that mandated it. He would be doing all of them a favor by saying that. So he's not going to say it. And he doesn't need to say it because no one is out there taking the vaccines because they think Donald Trump likes it. There's no real world gain to Donald Trump switching his messaging on that issue. Similarly, here, Donald Trump is saying the thing that he can say and should say. He's going to put the responsibility for this at the feet of the illegitimate president, and he simply cannot say the other thing. If Donald Trump agreed with the writer of this article, he could not say it. Donald Trump is not going to go out there and cheer on the end of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. You can look at the history of what he's done to prepare the country for this inevitability and understand that he knew it was coming and that he is working toward the post dollar as reserve currency world. And that should be enough. Actual actions and net effects should be looked at, not narrative manipulations and messaging. 
If this answer is unsatisfying, I'm sorry. But the question in response would be, do you understand political messaging at all? Or do you just like to tell people that you have bad feelings when the politicians say the things you don't like? I mean, if Ron DeSantis signs this bill that does nothing to protect election integrity in Florida and in fact makes the situation worse while allowing him to run for president without resigning, then we know a whole lot more about who Ron DeSantis really is than the years of Ron DeSantis being promoted on television as the warrior against the woke, the greatest governor who ever existed, the champion of Trumpism without Trump. If his actions work in direct opposition to election integrity, in direct opposition to the good of the people of Florida, and are 100% in service of making sure that Donald Trump won't be the next president, it really doesn't matter what he said this whole time and how much everyone liked it. We're pretty late in the game to get totally hung up on messaging. But again, the rest of this argument is exactly right. In fact, China's currency, the yuan, doesn't even pose a threat to the dollar. The yuan is a fifth place also ran in the currency race. So for now, the dollar still reigns supreme and being the regime whose currency enjoys global reserve status comes with many advantages. The first advantage is reserve currency status brings a greater global demand for dollars. This means more of a global willingness to absorb dollars into foreign central banks and foreign bank accounts, even as the dollar inflates and loses purchasing power. Ultimately, this means the U.S. regime can hoodwink the voters into accepting more monetary inflation, more financial repression, and more debt for many years before domestic price inflation becomes a political problem for the regime. After all, even if the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, creates $8 trillion in new dollars in order to prop up U.S. asset prices, much of the world will take those dollars out of U.S. domestic markets, and this will reduce price inflation in the U.S., at least in the short term. A second advantage, the fact that the dollar dominates in global trade transactions means more global demand for U.S. debt. Or as Reuters put it in 2019, the dollar is used, quote, for at least half of international trade invoices, five times more than the United States share of world goods imports, fueling demand for U.S. assets, end quote. Those assets include U.S. government debt. In fact, as Robert Murphy notes, this inflation-fueled demand for U.S. assets will be, quote, heavily tilted toward debt rather than equity in growing companies. This rush for U.S. debt pushes down the interest rate at which the U.S. government must pay on its enormous $30 trillion debt. All in all, reserve status for the dollar means a lot more U.S. government spending. This produces no net benefit since government spending in itself distorts the economy, drives up prices, and otherwise redistributes wealth according to political considerations rather than according to the needs of consumers and entrepreneurs. None of this is good for the productive people in the U.S. For one, deficit spending, whether for elective wars or welfare programs, must always be paid for, 
either in the form of price inflation, i.e. the inflation tax, or in terms of future ordinary taxation. Moreover, reserve currency status creates political cover for the regime's easy money policies in the short term. That is, global demand for the dollar helps create the temporary impression that monetary inflation comes with few downsides. This, however, can only continue until the dollar's reserve status ends or significantly weakens. In the meantime, the world will have been flooded with dollars. Reserve currency status, by politically fostering more deficit spending, also harms those parts of the private economy that depend on private investment. As deficit spending increases, the economy is flooded with ever larger amounts of government debt backed up by tax dollars. This attracts huge amounts of wealth to government treasuries that otherwise would have gone into private sector investments. All of this dollar profligacy has neither been necessary nor advisable, yet maintaining global reserve status can help regimes get away with this sort of thing for decades. Often, discussion about the dollar's reserve status creates a false dichotomy between total domination of the global monetary system on one hand and complete abandonment of the dollar on the other. A more likely scenario is that the dollar will weaken considerably, but will remain among the most often used currencies. After all, even after the pound sterling lost its status as reserve currency in the 1930s, it did not disappear. For example, let's say the U.S. dollar sinks to 40% of all foreign reserves and is only used in one third of all international trade invoices instead of one half as is now the case. This would not necessarily destroy the dollar or the U.S. economy, but it would certainly constrain the U.S. regime's ability to pile on another trillion dollars worth of debt without the true costs of mounting debt becoming abundantly clear. Perhaps more importantly, a world less awash in dollars will mean a world with less demand for U.S. assets, such as U.S. government debt. That means higher interest rates for the U.S. government and less of an ability to finance the welfare warfare state by inflating the currency. And we've discussed the debt ceiling fight that is going to have an effect on this factor right here. If the debt ceiling is not raised, this whole process gets turbocharged and starts to happen really quickly. If the debt ceiling does get raised and the McCarthy position advanced by Republicans last week goes into effect, then the omnibus spending bill from December, that all gets drawn back. We return to the status quo ante, and I imagine we'll begin to see the regime's priorities become really clear. Naturally, politicians and pundits such as Trump and Kudlow view any threat to this kind of state power as a bad thing. At this point, however, how we feel about it is irrelevant. It's going to happen regardless of our feelings on the matter. The only way it doesn't happen is if the U.S. regime suddenly starts slashing deficits and government spending, embraces a strong dollar policy, and perhaps even anchors the dollar to a commodity like gold. None of those things is going to happen without first experiencing a wake-up call on the level of losing currency reserve status. The good news is such a wake-up call will weaken the U.S. regime, potentially forcing policymakers to embrace a more sane fiscal and monetary policy. Again, I think this author, and by the way, his name is Ryan McMakin. I think he's dead on. 
about all of this except his analysis of what Donald Trump is actually doing. Donald Trump obviously wants to start slashing deficits and government spending. He wants to eliminate agencies. He wants to shrink the bureaucracy in ways it's never been done before. I don't think anyone doubts that it's his explicit policy. He brought the Federal Reserve under the U.S. Treasury. He certainly wants to pursue strong dollar policies and has discussed it in the past, anchoring the dollar to a commodity. Well, I guess that remains to be seen. That could happen, maybe with gold, maybe with something like Bitcoin. I'm very curious to see what currency news we get out of that BRICS summit. I think Donald Trump is only messaging on this issue to alert the public to the complete mismanagement and incompetence of the illegitimate administration. But this whole thing, as noted by this author, was inevitable regardless. There is no point getting hung up on the messaging when you realize that the speaker, in this case, Trump, couldn't say anything other than he's saying. Now, is there a possibility that Bitcoin will be what emerges from this massive global shift? BitVolt7 on Twitter pointed this out yesterday. He said, in case anyone hasn't been paying attention, the current administration is at war with the Bitcoin industry. The economic report of the president was the first time that the Biden administration openly admitted that Bitcoin created issues for the financial system and the environment. They strongly advocated for the necessity of central banking and central bank digital currencies. And he's highlighting a report authored by the White House Council of Economic Advisors in late March and then links to this. It's a report from yesterday directly from the White House titled The Dame Tax, making crypto miners pay for costs they impose on others. Last month, the president released his budget for fiscal year 2024, building on progress over the past two years to make critical investments to grow the economy, lower costs for families, protect and strengthen Medicare and Social Security and reduce the deficit. One new proposal in this year's budget, the Digital Asset Mining Energy Excise Tax, is an example of the president's commitment to addressing both longstanding national challenges as well as emerging risks. In this case, the economic and environmental costs of current practices for mining crypto assets, crypto mining for short. After a phase-in period, firms would face a tax equal to 30% of the cost of the electricity they use in crypto mining. Crypto mining is a process for validating transactions among holders of crypto assets. To record and transfer cryptographically secured assets on a distributed ledger by, for example, using computing equipment to perform calculations to select the validator. Currently, crypto mining firms do not have to pay for the full cost they impose on others in the form of local environmental pollution, higher energy prices, and the impacts of increased greenhouse gas emissions on the climate. The Dame tax encourages firms to start taking better account of the harms they impose on society. So my climate change, my climate change, the Bitcoin miners are creating and exacerbating climate change. They're using too much energy. It's dirty. It's going to create pollution. We just can't have it. 
Therefore, what we need to do is tax the hell out of them until they simply stop. While crypto assets are virtual, the energy consumption tied to their computationally intensive production is very real and imposes very real costs, as highlighted in a chapter of this year's economic report of the president entitled Digital Assets, Relearning Economic Principles. Recent reporting by the New York Times. Isn't that great that the White House is citing the New York Times? highlighted the scale of the power consumption associated with 34 of the largest crypto mining operations, which they calculated as equal to the power used by the surrounding 3 million homes. As shown in figure one, the amount of electricity used in crypto mining in the United States in 2022 was similar to what is used to power all the country's home computers or residential lighting. It is also about half of what refrigeration is and maybe 70% of what lighting is, it's less power than it takes to run people's televisions, slightly more than computers, and more than fans and pumps, freezers, clothes washers, and dishwashers. I have not yet heard them propose an excise tax on the electricity it takes to use your television or refrigerator. In fact, they've basically never talked about any of those things. So this is pretty clearly a direct attack on Bitcoin. They can pretend that it's all cryptocurrencies, but they're talking about Bitcoin, the one that actually requires all this power because it has a proof of work model rather than a proof of stake model. The power is part of the system and it must be part of the system. That's what maintains the integrity of the system and differentiates it from other cryptocurrencies that function in essentially the same way as fiat currencies do. Back to the White House statement. Crypto miners' high energy consumption has negative spillovers on the environment, quality of life, and electricity grids where these firms locate across the country. Pollution from electricity generation falls disproportionately on low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. Oh, no! Crypto miners' intensive and often volatile power consumption can also push up electricity prices for consumers and can increase risk for local electrical grids, straining equipment, causing service interruptions, and safety hazards. Yet because crypto mining is geographically mobile and the stability of the business model remains unclear, local utilities also face financial risks if they invest in upgrading capacity that may not be needed if mining activity ceases or moves away. Man, that would be terrible if different communities upgraded their electrical grids and provided more power. Gosh, what a nightmare it would be if some place like California did that rather than having rolling brownouts all year round. Alongside these known costs and risks, crypto mining does not generate the local and national economic benefits typically associated with businesses using similar amounts of electricity. That sounds like they're upset they can't tax it. Instead, the energy is used to generate digital assets whose broader social benefits have yet to materialize, as elaborated in the economic report of the president. There is little evidence of benefits to local communities in the form of employment or economic opportunity, and research has found that minor increases in local tax revenue are more than offset by increased energy prices for firms and households. 
They're basically just saying Bitcoin bad, Bitcoin bad, Bitcoin bad, Bitcoin bad for climate change, Bitcoin bad for racism, Bitcoin bad for poor people. They're presenting the entirety of the potential and potentially irrelevant downsides of Bitcoin while listing none of the upsides. And of course, why would they list the upsides? Bitcoin is a massive threat to them. Although the potential for crypto mining to relocate abroad, such as to areas with dirtier energy production, is a concern, other countries are also increasingly moving to restrict crypto asset mining. China banned such activity completely in 2021, as have eight other countries. Three Canadian provinces also have announced or enacted crypto mining moratoriums. Similarly, some U.S. states and localities are now charging higher electricity prices for or restricting the activity. To ensure that crypto mining is not simply pushed from one local community to another, a national policy is needed. You got to have something that's top down. Got to have the federal government weigh in, at least while they're still controlled by the global banking system and the global regime. Of course, the Dame tax is not a panacea. It is only one example of the administration's efforts to fight climate change, reduce energy prices, and increase access to electrified options for all Americans. Similarly, it is just one example of the president's larger efforts to ensure the responsible development of digital assets, modernize their tax treatment, and mitigate risks to financial stability. Estimated to raise $3.5 billion in revenue over 10 years, the primary goal of the Dame tax is to start having crypto miners pay their fair share of the costs imposed on local communities and the environment. So they're really getting the entire agenda in here. All of the slogans. This is part of their effort to fight climate change. They're not going after Bitcoin. They're going after climate change. They want to reduce energy prices by taxing energy used for certain things more not sure how that works. Maybe they're suggesting that that tax is going to lower demand, which will then lower prices. Now, I'm no math wizard, but it would seem like they would have to make the tax, the income from that tax, higher than the cost of providing the electricity. So it sounds like they're just punishing the Bitcoin miners and promising to reduce energy prices Everyone knows that's never going to happen. Increasing energy prices is an obvious part of the agenda they've pursued. And at the same time, they say they want to increase access to electrified options for all Americans. So it's just this electrified option that's not going to work for them. The option whose value can actually be proven rather than the fiat option, the central bank digital currency, where they just give you some numbers and they can change the number of numbers that you have and the value of numbers that you have whenever they want. They can turn your numbers on. They can turn your numbers off. They can stop you from having any numbers if you do the wrong thing with those numbers. What they want is control of all the numbers and to convince you to give them control over the numbers, they will present you with other numbers. What they need is responsible development of digital assets. They can't let other people control their own numbers in a decentralized fashion 
ensuring that no one can cheat. What they need is a system that is controlled by them. They have no problem saying it. They want to modernize the tax treatment of digital currencies and mitigate risks to financial stability. Well, whose financial stability are they talking about? Oh, once again, it's their own. It's the financial stability of the central banks. It's their ability to keep the regime system in place. So they are losing the dollar as the global reserve currency. That is inevitable at this point. And they don't want it to be replaced with Bitcoin. And they've shown no indication that their new dollar or that once the dollar loses its global reserve status, will be backed by gold or by Bitcoin. It's going to be backed by nothing. That's the system they want. That's the system they have always pursued. We now have a currency that is currently backed by nothing. All they need to do is take that fiat currency and get rid of all the cash, all of the coins, just make it totally electronic, just numbers on a device, and you get to send other people your numbers. They can send you numbers. You get paid in your little numbers. And we all get to pretend that the system hasn't changed at all until they start shutting it off for people, until they start confiscating your numbers for whatever they want. And a few years ago, it would be easy to say that's a conspiracy theory. You're just making that up. There's no way the regime is actually going to do that. They're not going to stop people from spending money. They're not going to confiscate people's money. They're not going to preclude people from participating in the economy, except we've seen them do exactly that. They did it to the truckers in Canada. We've seen platforms like PayPal attempt to impose speech codes and threaten their customers with the confiscation of their funds for violating the speech codes. We have banks in the U.S., on the verge of implementing central bank digital currencies on a trial run basis. And we have countries in Europe who are much further along in the process. This is where they want to go. This is one of the key components of the global regime's agenda. And what we are watching is all of this taking shape. If this isn't something you want, well, there is one way out that we've been told over and over and over again. And that is making sure that Donald Trump is again recognized as the president of the United States of America. People are beginning to understand that Donald Trump is the duly elected president of the United States of America right now. There is new polling out from Rasmussen today indicating just that. And as always, it's worth noting that polling is not accurate and not reliable, except in its ability to track trends over time. It can give you directional information on where things are going. Thinking that these numbers are accurate in terms of the proportion of the country believing in a certain thing is a bridge too far. All the polling companies essentially call the same list of people, a small subset, a small portion of, I think it's around 4 million landline phone numbers. They call these numbers, qualify the person who answers, then ask the questions, including about the person's identity. And then they weight those answers based on a predetermined notion of the proportional representation 
of each party and they arrive at their final numbers. This is by no means an exact science and it's probably time that the system be done away with altogether because it is essentially obsolete at this point. But again, it's still worth considering directional knowledge over time, particularly if you're looking at results from the same polling company using the same methods over time. And so that's what we have here with the latest Rasmussen poll. They have asked this question a number of times over the last couple of years, and the numbers keep rising. The question, how likely is it that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 presidential election? Likely or not likely? All voters, 62% say likely, 32% say not likely. That's two to one people who know that the election was stolen against people who know that the election was stolen, but are still willing to lie about it. Republicans, 80% to 16%. That's five to one. You get in a room with six Republicans. Five of them know the election was stolen. Democrats, 45% of Democrats say it is likely that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 election. Only 50% of them say it's not likely. Democrats, people who still identify as Democrats in the middle of 2023, 50% of those people, according to this Rasmussen poll, are all they can muster to support Joe Biden's legitimacy. Only half of Democrats, current Democrats, think Joe Biden is legitimate. Independents, 64% say cheating was likely a factor in the outcome of the 2020 race, and only 28% say it was not likely. Those are pretty incredible numbers, and the numbers have only moved in that direction for the last two and a half years. People are understanding that something is deeply wrong, and cases are moving forward in Arizona just yesterday in Florida. We got news of a new machine fraud scandal where blank ballots are put into the machines, triggering mass adjudications, which a poll worker can do. Just decide in a batch what all the votes on all those ballots really were. We've heard stories about that since the fall of 2020. Now we have it coming to light in Florida. We have pictures of ballot signatures coming out of Arizona. In Carrie Lake's case, the signatures do not match at all. Elon Musk was out there interacting with Abe Hamaday, who had his election in Arizona for attorney general stolen by the regime. He is still contesting that race. He wrote on Twitter, your ballot was 15 times more likely to be rejected if you voted on election day in Maricopa County. He shows the numbers. Elon responds, strange. Then he comes back and says, also strange that 30% of printers go down on election day after working fine for the primary. Also strange, Maricopa County refused to extend voting hours. Also strange, Maricopa County withheld the provisional ballots from us prior to trial. Cover-ups are strange. People are seeing this now and it's having an effect. People are understanding that something is critically wrong and that 
The lies just aren't working anymore. The social incentives for keeping quiet about election fraud are disappearing. The punishments for talking about election fraud have disappeared completely. And you can take that from me, someone who talks about election fraud online all the time and then gets absolutely flooded with bots, people that have zero followers who started their account three weeks ago and only have three tweets about sports or video games or reality television. That's what the resistance to this is now. If everyone was just speaking up, it would all be over. But the truth is, the result is inevitable either way. And people are coming around not only to the fact that Donald Trump won and everybody knows it, but that things were a lot better under Donald Trump. That same Rasmussen poll now has Donald Trump with a 59% favorability rating among all likely voters, 11 points ahead of Biden. When they are placed in a head-to-head matchup, For who should be president, Donald Trump is seven points up. That's got nothing to do with the Electoral College, nothing to do with the state math. That's the national popular vote reflection. Not that the national popular vote is a real thing, but I know that that's what regime communists really, really care about. They don't like the Electoral College. They want to know what everybody thinks. That's the definition of democracy. Well, hey, now the majority thinks that Donald Trump is the guy. And the majority thought that when they went to the polls in 2020 as well. The entire illusion of majority is slipping away at this point. Everyone has learned that it's all an illusion. This is all a concoction, a false reality created by the media, by the regime. Restrictions on what people are allowed to say, the censorship and the propaganda. That is what creates this illusion. But all that is dropping away. And now we're left with the only reality. People know that Donald Trump won. Soon, everybody is going to know Trump won, and there will not be any social credit for pretending otherwise. Immediately, everyone's going to be like, yeah, okay, well, yes, I knew that something was wrong, but come on, man, it's Trump. Well, good luck, commies. The illusion of majority didn't work out. It's a numbers game, and you lost. I'll be back tomorrow, the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!